If you will turn your attention to the scripture sheets that you have in front of you, or if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to bring your Bible, but if you don't, you can look at the scripture sheets. But if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, we're reading verses 1 through 5, and then for our New Testament reading, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now, the New Testament reading, Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to come before the Lord our God, and we're going to ask for his blessing upon many who are hurting, both physically and spiritually, those who struggle with doubts and fears, and those who are even now preaching his word. We're going to be praying for John Sartell as he is preaching at Briarwood in Birmingham over a missions conference weekend this weekend. That's why you have me. And right now, we're going to come before the Lord our God, before his throne of grace. Please pray with me. Our Father... We do not come before you in our righteousness. We come before you in the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, thanking you for the application of his sacrifice, his blood upon us, Holy Spirit of God, 
thanking you that that gives us that position of coming before you, not fearfully and not with trembling, but with reverence, awe, and that of a child coming to a father. So, Father, we pray. We pray for those who are hurting. We pray those who are fearing, those who are grieving. We pray that you would lift their hearts up, give them a vision of exactly what you have prepared in the heavenlies. We pray indeed for John and Kaki Cruz. I pray, Father, for this precious and dear Father of the faith, and we pray that you would strengthen his body and strengthen his soul. Give to him the Spirit's relief. Holy Spirit of God, come upon him and remind him of the beauty of the gospel. Remind him of that which awaits us in Christ. We pray for Kaki. We ask that you would strengthen her as she cares for John. And Father, we also pray for, for Kate and John Morrison. We ask, Father, for the relief of any pain. We ask for the relief of distress. We ask for a heavenly visitation of your spirit with them. Would you point them at the beauty of our Savior? And we do pray for John and Terry as they are in Birmingham. We ask that you would give success as you see fit for the preaching of your word, that John would know that freedom of your spirit in him. And Lord, we pray that for even now. We ask that you, almighty God, would speak to us, your people, for that's who we want to hear. We pray that you would do that in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you will, turn back to the passages that we read earlier. We're going to be referring to those as we proceed through this message. We live in a time of great grief. Grief within our culture, grief within families. An era in which, indeed... Um, evil is called good, and good is called evil. We see it all around us, perhaps like no other time before that we can imagine. And we are in an era when identifying or identity of a person is a fluid and very elastic definition. I can define myself according to whatever gender, I can define myself according to what I want to be, and the world tells me that this is okay. It pertains to subjects of gender, ethnicity, nationality, and socioeconomic ideology. And what are we to do? What are we to do as the church of Jesus Christ and how we approach these things? Some of us are angry. Some of us are greatly saddened. Some of us are fearful. And all of those feelings are very understandable. Now, I want you to relax. We're not going to focus on that today. What I want to focus on today is a different kind of identity, an identity which is not fluid, 
which is not flexible, which is not elastic, nor is it elusive. We in the church, particularly in East Memphis, now remember, I'm originally from East Memphis, so I'm not coming in as an outsider attacking anybody, all right? We have a tendency to form our own identities that are somewhat innocuous in their effect. I have a bumper sticker on my truck, and it says, Madison Valley Ranch. Madison Valley Ranch is a um, a fly fishing lodge in Montana where we spent a couple years ago some time fly fishing. It's, it's an identity marker. It says, I've been there. I know what that's like. I have a friend in Alabama. His name really is Bubba, um, truthfully. Bubba lives in Montgomery, but he um, has some land and a cabin and near where we lived in Prattville. And he has a pond on that land. And on occasion, he would invite anyone to come out there and fish. And let's just assume that I went out there and fished one day on Bubba's pond. And I had a great day, let's say that. And I got finished fishing, and I was very grateful for Bubba's hospitality and his invitation to come and fish. He has an alligator in that pond, by the way. Truthfully. And so, as I'm expressing my gratitude, let's just say Bubba says to me, he says, Brian, I'm so glad you were here, and I know you really appreciated my hospitality, and my granddaughter made up this little card, and it says on it, Bubba's Pond, and I've laminated it, and I'd like to tape it to your truck. You get the point. It's not quite as thrilling as Madison Valley Ranch in Montana that not communicate the same thing. Now you laugh, but how many of us have a bumper sticker that says Yeti? Let's just say, let's take, go, go out there where it says Yeti, and I want you to take another bumper sticker and place on it a bumper sticker that says Igloo. <laughs> doesn't have the same effect, does it? Or, you know, some people have bumper stickers that say 30A right? Replace that one with a bumper sticker that says I-240 <laughs> or Perkins Road Extended or Lamar Avenue. Or how about replacing the bumper stickers that read 26.2 indicating that the driver has run a marathon with one that reads 1.35. It doesn't have that same effect. You get the idea. We, we have those little associations, and it's an identity. I'm just as guilty. We have an identity that we want to communicate to people. We want them to know this about us. We want them to know the group with whom we're associated, right? We want them to think something of us. In the Bible, we are pointed to an identity that far, far surpasses any identity we might have or any identity we might want to project. This identity is neither elusive, nor is it elastic. It is firm, it is strong, and cannot be broken. The vision that we have just read about in Zechariah 
reveals to us that identity. It's about our justification. It is about how we are viewed and identified by our Heavenly Father with what He accepts us into His presence. The vision reads something like a play. There's a setting. It is in the throne room of grace, the throne room of God. And as plays have, it has a cast. The cast is made up of Joshua, the high priest. You also see the person of Satan who is there. And then you see the angel of the Lord. And don't forget about the prophet Zechariah because, interestingly enough, he enters into this vision himself and interacts with the rest of the cast. But let's start with Joshua. Joshua the high priest. Every year a high priest was selected from amongst all the priests. They cast lots to determine who the high priest would be for that particular year. And on that particular day, the Day of Atonement, in that particular year, the high priest would be prepared to go into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God was, where God manifests Himself. And there was a long period of preparation, a lot of ceremonial cleansing that took place. The high priest was not allowed to live in his own home during that week. He was to be sequestered into an apartment off of the temple. You don't want your high priest to unnecessarily be contaminated by bumping into a dead body or bumping into someone with a sickness or anything else that was on going on within the community of faith. No, he was to be sequestered. He, on the Day of Atonement itself, he was to take five public baths behind a screen, a linen screen, where people could be certain that he was carrying out the bathing as he should. There's something of a shadow that was taking place. So glad we don't live in those days. He was to take five such baths. He was to wash his hands and feet ten times on that day. He was to take off the ornamented robe that priests normally wore and put on the plain, clean, white linen robe, which was to be symbolic of his purity. He would then officiate over the sacrifice of a bull, placing his hands on the head of the bull while publicly confessing before all the people his own sins. Again, I'm very glad that we're not living in that time. He then presides over another offering for the sins of the priest serving along with him. Then he would be, then would come the selection of the scapegoat. You know, they would select goats. There were two goats. One was to be selected as a scapegoat. The other one would be sacrificed. So thus, being made ceremonial clean, clean, he would go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, carrying the censer of smoke while offering intercessory prayers to God for the sins of himself, for the sins of his family, 
for the sins of the priests and for the sins of the people. As he went into the, into the Holy of Holies, swinging the censer and asking for the forgiveness of those sins, he would then come back out and taking the basin with the blood of the goat that was sacrificed, he would go back in and sprinkle the, the Ark of the Covenant itself and thus atoning for his own sins and the sins of his people. He would then come out, the scapegoat, which has symbolically had the sins of the people placed on it, will be sent into the wilderness to never again be seen. This was how the process was intended to go. But that's not how it went on this occasion. Zechariah sees something entirely different. Turn back to that passage in Zechariah chapter 3. As we see the unfolding of the drama... We find that Zechariah, who is watching, discovers something horrific. Listen to what it says. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Imagine, imagine if you will, that you are Zechariah, and you have seen the preparations that have gone on, and everyone is waiting for this atonement to be made. Your, your own peace, your own security is relying on that high priest being ceremonially clean to offer these sacrifices to make atonement for your sin and for his and for everyone else's. And you look up. We've, we've cleaned this up a bit in the passage in the English where it says filthy, replace that with excrement. Because that's what it says. He's covered with excrement. His robes are covered with excrement. How could that be? What in the world took place? They watched him. They washed him. They saw him bathe. They saw everything that took place. And he goes into the Holy of Holies. And instantly you're watching him. And he's covered with excrement. Can you imagine as Zechariah is standing there. And he's thinking, oh no. Oh no, who's going to make atonement? Who's going to do this for us? Who's going to take our sins before the Lord? We are undone. Think of Isaiah as he is in the temple and he's praying and he sees the Lord filling the temple and all of his glory. And Isaiah says, woe is me, woe unto me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Zechariah is looking on Joshua, the high priest, and he's thinking, woe to us. We're undone. There's nothing there for us. How could this have happened? And then you see the 
other person, the other character in the play, Satan himself, the deceiver, the liar. Only this time he's not lying. This time he is standing there and he is accusing. He is accusing Joshua and he is accusing him before the angel of the Lord. That's the other character, the angel of the Lord. All throughout the Old Testament, you see these, um, these representations, these symbols, these shadows, the foreshadowing of the work and the person of Jesus Christ who was to come. You see it in the kings, you see it in the prophets, you see it in the priests, you see it in the temple, and the tabernacle, you see it in all that you see within the Old Testament, the sacrifice. It's pointing them to the one who would come. Only this is not a foreshadowing. This is the person. This is the second person of the Trinity. When you see in the Bible those, those words, the angel of the Lord, that is the appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. You see him first when you, when you meet Hagar as she is running away from Abraham and Sarah and she is, she's starving to death in the wilderness and he appears to her and he speaks to her. You see, it with, um, you see it with Moses in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord is speaking from the burning bush, God himself. You see it with Caleb as he is being prepared for battle. This mysterious figure, the angel of the Lord, is seen speaking. He's seen confronting. He's seen uh, delivering justice. You see him sitting in the shade of a tree. He appears throughout the Old Testament, and he appears here. He is appearing as a defense. And he speaks to Satan, and he says, The Lord rebuke you. Hush. Be silent. Now, remember, Satan's not lying here. Joshua really is covered with filth. Do you think about that? When people accuse you in this current culture, when people accuse you and then you say, no, I'm not that, and they say, aha, then why are you defending yourself if you're not that? Do you feel that, that tension where you're being accused? What are you afraid of? You see, there is a, another declaration here. The angel of the Lord turns to those who are attending to the Lord, and he says, take off the filthy garments. Put on him clean garments. Do you you know what justification is? Let me remind you. We have all sorts of confessions and creeds and statements of faith throughout history. Some of you will know, doubtless, the Shorter Catechism definition of justification. Let me read to you what the Heidelberg Catechism says in number 60, question number 60. By the way, write that down, Heidelberg Catechism, question number 60. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me, 
that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, having never kept any of them, and I am still inclined to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Folks, that's a beautiful definition of justification. It takes it, takes it out of the realm of purely the theoretical, the, the legal aspect, and puts it in the personal, devotional uh, that's what God looks at me. That's how he sees me. He doesn't see me and look at me and say, there's Bryant, that sinner who's done blank, 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 blank. All of that. He doesn't do that. He identifies me by his son, by his son's righteousness. Christian, do you understand what that means? Do you hear that? That is his definition for you. It's his definition for us. It's how he identifies us. That's how we are to see ourselves before him. Not that we are blind and we don't see our sin. No, we've just gone through confessing our sin. We do confess our sin, but that does not change our identity before Almighty God. That gives us that glorious reception into his presence that the Savior, Jesus Christ, has. I know it sounds almost heretical, doesn't it? It's scandalous that he would look at me in the same way that he looks at Jesus. That's what it means. He looks at me as if I never had nor have I committed any sin. That's how he sees me. Now, if, if you weren't Presbyterians, you would actually be dancing and singing hallelujah right now. It is beautiful. It is glorious. What laws can be passed to prohibit you from having that relationship with Almighty God? What can stop you from worshiping Him? What can man do to you? Nothing Satan is here. Satan, the great deceiver, the great accuser, the great liar, is standing in front of God making accusations against Joshua the high priest. And he makes them against you and he makes them against me. And what, what man can make those accusations against the rebuke of the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, who says, the Lord rebuke you, stop up your mouth. This is my child. This one has my righteousness. This one has my identity. That's our identity. If by faith you have looked to the Savior, that his blood is sacrificed, poured out for you, that's your identity. As a side note, that's why I'm not free to identify myself by my sin. 
or my temptation. No, I'm a child of the King. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, so are you. Not that you're not a sinner. You know and I know we are sinners. But that is not our identity before Almighty God. You remember the episode where Peter gets the vision in Acts, where Peter is he's on the rooftop and he receives a vision from the Lord, and he sees this sheet being lowered down onto the roof and is filled with all the unclean animals. And the Lord says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Remember that? And Peter says, not so, Lord, for nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. And he is rebuked. The Lord says, do not call unclean that which I have declared clean. That pertains to us. You see, the Lord wasn't doing that to reveal that to Peter. He was talking about Peter going to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile. And Peter was hesitant. He didn't want to associate with Gentiles at that time. And the Lord says, you go. Because I'm going to redeem him. And I'm going to declare him clean. Folks. It is a declaration that the Lord gives to his people. So you can stand. You can stand. When, when people come after you, you can stand. You can say, not so, not so. The Lord my God has declared me clean. And that's good. And then you see Zechariah. Zechariah joins in to the picture here. As he's watching this, and he, and he knows, he's seen everything that has taken place with Zechariah, I mean with Joshua the high priest, the cleansing. And he is watching as, he's watching the robes, they're there. And he's seeing this unfold where they're taking the filthy robes off, and they're putting clean robes on him. And he, sa- and he can't help himself. He says, and, and put a clean turban on his head. Cover him up. Don't leave anything uncovered. Cover him up. And they do. Isn't it amazing? If you will, look over at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Those three rhetorical questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? All of those is an assumed answer of no one. No one. No one will bring any charge. No one is going to be able to condemn. No one can separate us from the love of Christ. What can anyone do to hurt you? You said, well, they can. They can kill me. What does that do? That just places you directly in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Now, I don't, I'm not looking for death. I'm not looking to be killed. But folks, seriously, the reality is this is not theoretical. This is real. This is a real identity. What can anyone do to you? Stand. Stand firm. Stand firm in the identity that has been placed upon you by the imputation of the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how he sees you. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10. It's not on your sheet. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 19 through 25. You can write it down and read it later, but listen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why? Because you are a justified person and you are gathered here to worship with other justified people. And we worship with all the freedom that the Lord our God gives to us. Not with trembling, but with reverent joy. Remember how you were made righteous before God. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants me these as if I had never committed nor had any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Do you believe? Do you believe the promise of God? Do you believe that He has provided for you everything that is needed, everything that is sufficient? for your righteousness. He has. The great hymn writer, John Newton, the former slave trader, in his own writing, he confessed that as a slave trader, the captain of a slave ship, that he often would go down into the hold of the ship and have his way with the slave women there. He was really a very, very wicked man. But John Newton was taken by God and made his own. 
declared to be righteous. He wrote the hymn that we're going to sing in just a moment. But I want you, as we sing this hymn, you may not be really knowledgeable of this hymn, but this, the title of the hymn is Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. I want to read to you one of the verses. Let us wonder grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Can you picture that? Can you picture what what John Newton is speaking about? Picture this. You're about to be executed. And the executioner is standing there with his axe and your head is down on the wood. Waiting for the axe to come down. And the executioner has that black mask on. The hood. And as you are lying there with your head on the block, the executioner removes the hood and you see the smiling face of Jesus. He does not condemn you. He has rescued you. He provides your way to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would rest in this. I pray that as the world thrusts upon us their identities for us, and as we adapt and adopt identities other than this one, that you would cause us to see again that these identities have no value The only identity that we rest in is the identity you've given to us, and that is that we have been declared righteous because of the righteousness of our Savior. For those who don't, Father, I pray that they would see this perhaps for the very first time, and that they would cry out to you, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and then they would know that freedom of being under the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. May we walk in those robes. May we lie down to sleep in those robes. May we rise up in those robes. May we face the end of our days here upon this earth in those robes. And may we stand in those robes before your presence, knowing that we too have been declared righteous. Bless us with that, we pray. Almighty God, in Jesus' name, amen.